Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 3.2, what is a covenant? All right, welcome back. Let's have another look at this. So we've looked at the big picture in our last podcast. There was a lot of information there. Throughout the Bible, God is establishing a kingdom because he wants to live among his people. And to that end, we saw how four ingredients are required to build that kingdom. People, law, leadership, and land. And we looked at some different modes of leadership. And I encouraged you at the end of that just to think about how those leadership models might apply to your life. So what next? Well, um, I was very brief, actually, in that last podcast in mentioning covenant. But of course, the covenant relationship between Israel and Yahweh is pivotal. And it's not just pivotal to our understanding of the Old Testament, but to our understanding of the whole Bible and of our our lives, how we relate to God. So let's have a look at this. Um, We're not only interested in the Bible's major themes. I just want to remind you as well. It's not just the Bible that's in question here. Uh, I also am very interested in your life's major themes, but I don't know you. (laughs) So I can't comment specifically, but I suspect this is one of them, the theme of covenant. Understanding how covenant works is as important as those last two themes we looked at of chaos and creation. Why is that? Well, because the covenant between God and Israel, it's not just a charter, like a, a set of guidelines for this relationship between a king and his subjects. This is God's way, his chosen way of resolving the struggle between chaos and creation, between this human propensity to screw things up, in other words, our our sinful nature, and God's good intentions for us as his creatures. And we looked at the real tension between those two things, you know, what God wants for us on one hand, and the kinds of bad choices that we lean into or fall into on the other. And we feel that tension every day. The problem, as we've seen, is that human beings are infected with this propensity to screw things up, let's call it, a kind of incurable, rebellious attitude that runs through our veins. And the solution, the cure for that disease, is covenant. Covenant is the way forward. It's the way out of this bind. I don't know if you've ever thought of covenant in that way. But let's step back and answer some key questions like what is a covenant and how exactly does a covenant relationship work? Now, let me just start by saying that one of the most common misunderstandings about the Old Testament is that the law is bad. Too often, the law is perceived either as a bunch of rules God imposes on us, and, you know, let's be honest, who likes rules, or as a huge weight that's just heaped on the back of a people who can't possibly carry it. Related to that is a more subtle misunderstanding that Israel had to keep the Old Testament law in full and to perfection. You know, the logic goes something like this. Israel must obey the law perfectly. Israel can't keep the law perfectly. So God sent Jesus. Have you ever heard that? It's nice and simple for sure, but it's not very accurate because it's way too simplistic. Israel was never expected to be perfect in obeying the law. It would be pretty cruel for a God who understands our weaknesses to put a massive pile of laws upon us and then demand that we get everything right, wouldn't it? No, the book of Leviticus contains a whole bunch of sacrificial rites for that very reason. When Israel disobeyed the laws, 
that they had committed themselves to obey, they would have a way to sort of make amends for that. Let me just read you a couple verses. Leviticus 4, for example, begins like this. 4 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying this, When anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, dot, 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 and then it carries on. See, the chapter breaks down into what should be done if a priest sins, what should be done if the whole community sins, if a leader sins, and so on. Um, So listen to this bit, which is about when Joe Bloggs, a random member of the community of God's people, commits some sort of error or sin. This is Leviticus 4, 27 and onwards. If any one of the ordinary people among you sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not be done, and incurs guilt, then the sin that you've committed is made known to you. You shall bring a female goat without blemish as your offering for the sin that you've committed. You shall lay your hand on the head of the sin offering, and the sin offering will be slaughtered at the place of the burnt offering. The priest will take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and he shall pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat as the fat is removed from the offering of well-being, and the priest shall turn it into a smoke into smoke on the altar for the for a pleasing odor to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement on your behalf, and you will be forgiven. You see what's going on there? The point is, is that God knew Israel couldn't get it right. The Israelites were expected to give God their allegiance. But errors weren't ever going to completely ruin that relationship. These sacrificial rites are, you know, they're built into the covenant as part of the covenant relationships. So to use an analogy that we can relate to, think of a marriage, right? On a wedding day, a person promises to put the other person first, to love them sacrificially. But there are days when we're selfish, aren't there? And it's not expected that we're going to be perfect for the rest of our lives. Well, none of us would even last out the the honeymoon. Actually, I've got a funny story about that, but I better not pop it on a podcast or I'll really get myself into trouble. We do promise to love our partner exclusively, though, and that is a promise that we cannot break without doing serious damage, sometimes irreparable damage to the relationship. And as I mentioned last time, that's what breaks Israel's covenant with Yahweh. It's not the unintentional sins that can be made right through sacrifice. It's in the provocative, very provocative language of the prophets. It's Israel's whoring after lovers or gods, other lovers of gods, that ultimately spoils her covenant with Yahweh. See, the sacrificial system enabled Israel to atone for their acts of resistance against God. And you can see I'm trying to avoid using the word sin. But by atone, I mean that Israel they make amends or they seek forgiveness or they pay a penalty via an animal for the damage done to the relationship with Yahweh. And yeah, all that sacrificial stuff, it's, it's not something that we understand very easily. It's from a different world. It really is. 3,000 years ago. So we, we really need to do a little bit of work to translate that into our own experience. And there are different ways of understanding atonement, you know, making amends for sin. And all of them come from the Bible. So it's too complex just to use one metaphor like sacrifice. But by atoning for wrongdoing, what Israel's doing is 
being justified before God. Well, that, that, that doesn't mean that Israel's justifying her actions or being defensive. That's sometimes how we use the word, isn't it? You know, justify myself means I'm demonstrating to you that I really did do the right thing. <laughs> but it means that Israel is actually considered in the right by God. Israel's okay. Israel can remain in God's holy presence. So in fact, the law is a gift of grace. We don't often see it like that. But it facilitates this ongoing relationship between a rebellious people, people like us, and a holy God like Yahweh. So how do I get into a covenant relationship with God? Great question. Glad you asked. This is why the covenant is so important. The covenant is God's way of providing an answer to our human propensity to muck things up. Right? So Adam and Eve's contagious condition, which we saw spreading in Genesis 3 to 11, it begins its reversal in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham into a covenant relationship with himself. And this applies to you. Okay? Your propensity to muck things up in your relationships, your life decisions, attitudes or words in conversation, those things are healed and ultimately overcome by remaining in a covenant with God. And how do you do that? Well, not by becoming perfect overnight, you'll be glad to hear. None of us is, is expected to be perfect. I'm not trying to suggest that nothing has changed since Old Testament times either, or that the, you know, the new covenant in, in Jesus is no different to the old covenant. But how we enter into covenant with God hasn't changed. It happens not through perfect obedience to rigorous demands of the law, but it happens through faith. Now, often people assume that Israel's part in the Old Testament covenant was to fulfill the law perfectly through faultless obedience. I mentioned that a moment ago, but that's, that's not right. That's not it. Israel and Abraham before Israel fulfilled the law perfectly by trusting God. We sometimes think that um, it's a New Testament truth in contrast to an Old Testament truth. But it's right there in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and God reckoned or ascribed to him righteousness. That is, God justified him, declared him to be in the right. And the whole point of using Abraham as the example is that the law didn't even exist yet. This is Paul's point. You know, in Galatians 3 and Romans 4, when he, he cites that exact verse, Paul is saying that what put Abraham in a right relationship with God was not his obedience to certain laws, because the law hadn't even been given into, to Israel yet, but his trust in the God of the covenant. So you see, what, what matters for us in our relationship to God, it's not moral perfection. Of course, we want to reflect God's character as fully as we can, and we try to. But when we get it wrong, what matters is that our first allegiance is still to God. In other words, we, we got it wrong, right? We weren't pushing in that direction. We got it wrong. We didn't make a conscious decision to ditch God and worship money or sex or, or power. We got it wrong because of the human propensity to screw things up. To really get our heads around this, uh, it, it might be helpful to pause 
and look at what the Bible means when it describes someone as righteous. Because I remember when I was younger, uh, reading the Bible and you know coming across Psalms, which said, Yahweh or the Lord is righteous. And I thought, why is the Bible describing God as righteous? Seems a really weird thing to say, because isn't that a bit obvious? You know, of course, I assumed that righteous meant upright and, and holy and morally perfect, the opposite of wicked. But it just seemed weird for Psalms to celebrate God's righteousness as if there was something surprising about it. But as I did some digging, I discovered that the word righteous in the Bible is a relational term. More specifically, I learned that righteousness in the Bible tends to be about doing justice to a relationship. So in other words, to be righteous is to do right, but it implies a set of rules or laws. In other words, it implies doing the right thing within an agreed covenant or relationship. And again, probably the best example for us to think about to get our heads around this is a marriage or or maybe a business contract. So the basic idea when you marry someone or when you sign a business, business contract is that you'll do the things that you say on the contract that you'll do, right? You'll be true to your word. You'll do the right thing. And this is why the Hebrew word for righteousness can be translated covenant faithfulness. That's just as valid. In many instances, to be righteous is to be faithful to the covenant agreement that you've made. So when we talk about the righteousness of God, whether in the Old Testament or the New We're referring to God's way of doing justice to the covenant relationship that he established with human beings. Does that make sense? So God's rightness or righteousness is measured by the degree to which he's faithful to promises that he's made. Now, whether the covenant is with a single person like Abraham or with an entire nation like Israel, God's righteousness, his covenant faithfulness is measured by his promise keeping. So that comes back to my question, you know, when I was reading the Psalms and I thought, why is the Bible describing God as righteous? Well, it's because those Psalms are celebrating the fact that God is a promise keeper. He always keeps his promises. And that is something worth celebrating, something worth singing about. And what about us? Well, we're going to explore this in detail in the next podcast when we get to Genesis 15. But as you may have guessed already, the same definition of righteousness in the Bible applies to human beings, right? The same definition that I've just applied to God applies to human beings. So if you make a covenant commitment to God and you abide by the rules or guidelines of that covenant, you are righteous. Let me say that again because it's quite striking. If you make a covenant commitment to God or you enter into a covenant relationship with God, and you abide by the rules or the guidelines of that covenant, then you are righteous. Sounds weird, but it's true. And here's the bit that's really hard for us to get our heads around. If your part in the covenant is not to be morally perfect, but to trust God, then what makes you righteous within that relationship is your trust in God, not moral perfection. Do you know what else we we struggle to accept about this, even though it's written in black and white? We struggle to understand that this is not just a New Testament reality. 
See, Paul makes this point in the New Testament, as I, as I mentioned, in Galatians 3 and Romans 4, because he wants to be clear about the fact that Abraham is reckoned as righteous in Genesis 15, 6, even before the law existed. The point is that Abraham's part in that covenant was not obedience to 613 laws, but simply trust in God. That's why Genesis 15, 6 states quite clearly, Abraham trusted God and he reckoned that to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham's righteousness, and yes, we're in the Old Testament here, was not because of moral obedience to rules, but because he believed in Yahweh. Now, having said all that, while we're on the general topic of covenant in the Old Testament, we do see Israel breaking that covenant. So we need to address that. I don't mean that they got some things wrong now and then. I mean that they actively pursued other husbands, to use the Old Testament's language, other kings, other gods, little g. And they did this to the point where God eventually said through his prophets, that's it, I've had enough. This covenant is broken. The prophets even speak of a divorce certificate, so it's strong language, when they talk about the coming exile as judgment for Israel's breaking of the covenant. And it's because of Israel breaking the covenant in this way that we get prophets, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel, talk about a new covenant that's going to come. It's not completely disconnected from the old one, but the goal is the same. The goal is forgiveness of sins, acceptance by God, a relationship between Yahweh and his people. So we've covered a lot in this podcast. We've talked primarily about covenant as a way through the tension between creation and chaos. And we've seen that the law in the Old Testament isn't bad. It was actually a gift of grace. It was a way of inviting Israel to reflect God's character. But instead of obeying the law or accepting the invitation to be a light to the nations, the problem was this. Israel grabbed that invitation held it up with pride and announced to the nations, we're special, we're elect, we're chosen, we're invincible. And they put it in a frame on the wall. And although God had built into the covenant ways of atoning for the human propensity to muck things up, Israel went way beyond. They just chose other gods, worshipped other gods, broke the covenant or the marriage between Yahweh and Israel. So we've also seen that by keeping the terms of a covenant, God shows himself to be righteous. And that when people keep their part of the covenant, they also are considered righteous in God's eyes. So there's been a lot here in this podcast, but it's time to finish up. And as we go our separate ways, let me just encourage you to think on this question. Do you consider yourself righteous? You may not use that word, to describe yourself. But I ask you this, do you consider yourself righteous? Why or why not? See ya. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.